Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Why do films portray Christians as crazy? By Roger Brotherton. We knew we were in trouble when he started quoting the Bible. There is one rule we should all follow in a zombie apocalypse. It is not to trust the isolated community of believers huddled around a Bible-quoting preacher. You know the plot line. The one that never occurs in Star Trek. The crew of the USS Enterprise land on a paradise-like planet only to discover that everything is exactly as it seems. No. The rules of genre television must be upheld. If it seems too good to be true, it probably is. This was the strong suspicion my eldest child and I immediately leapt to while watching season one, episode eight of HBO's The Last of Us. If you haven't seen it, it's a zombie apocalypse drama. It bit like The Walking Dead, but with more giraffes and fewer zombies. Is it a virus? Is it radiation? No, it's a fungus that has zombified the masses. Starting with a few isolated infections here and there, it rapidly mushroomed, I guess, to turn the placid citizens of the world into manic flesh eaters. All I'm saying is, keep applying the antifungal toenail cream. It may be the only thing standing between us and the collapse of civilization as we know it. So when episode eight opened with a previously unknown character quoting the Bible to a cheerful flock hiding at a diner, we knew things weren't going to turn out well. The signs were all there. He was almost definitely a paedophile, possibly a murderer, and very likely a cannibal. As it turned out, we'd hit a perfect straight. Three for three. He was all of them. I probably should have issued a spoiler warning for that one, but to be honest, if you didn't see it coming, The Last of Us probably isn't for you. You'd probably be happier watching something more sedate. Silent Witness, anyone? Needless to say, the episode provoked no small amount of theological commentary in our household, mainly querying why it is that anyone exhibiting even a modicum of Christian belief in shows like this almost always turns out to be completely unhinged. Why do the righteous always have something wrong with them? Why are the God-fearing always so goddamn weird? Just to be clear... I'm not a murderer, nor a paedophile, nor a cannibal, and I have no plans. But somehow, the prejudice that Christians must be crazy has come to influence how I view my own spiritual history. I have inadvertently imbibed the simple naturalistic logic that if I am a Christian, then there is something wrong with me. Some part of me shakes hands with Freud and retrospectively attributes my conversion to neurosis, a coping strategy, a crutch. The assumption that the only reason I would become something so unusual, so out of step with the people I spend most of our time with, is that 
I'm weird. Quietly, without realising it, that is how I've come to view it. I need God because I'm weak. Of course, religion can and often is used as a coping strategy. Leading psychologists of religion, like Kenneth Pargament, have made entire careers out of studying this phenomenon. For several decades, he and his collaborators have demonstrated pretty conclusively that people use religion and spirituality as potent sources of coping with the pain of life. From this perspective, religious conversion can be viewed as a transformation of significance. When the things we previously relied on to give us a sense of meaning and stability fail us, when our adjustment to life falls apart and cannot be put back together again, we give up trying to conserve what was previously meaningful and instead take a transformative leap toward a new view of what matters to us. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. When the going gets too tough, some people turn to Jesus. But there are many ways we can use religion to cope. And over the years, Pargament and his collaborators have identified a few of them. Some people defer everything to God. They cope by thinking God will do everything for them. They plead for him to intervene. Others are self-reliant. They may believe in God, but they don't expect much from him. For them, prayer is more like therapeutic meditation than anything medically effective. Others cope in a collaborative way. They don't leave it all to God, nor do they think everything centres on them. They take responsibility for their lives, but view God as a companion, a collaborator, a conversation partner through all the vicissitudes of life. It probably comes as no surprise that in studies of religious people dealing with chronic illness, these styles of coping significantly predict prognosis over time. There are many ways it can help us, and some of them are more admirable and effective than others. Those who leave it all to God usually do worse. Those who think it's all down to them do better. And those who pray and take the pills do best. Coping with a painful and bewildering world is undoubtedly one of the benefits of religious belief. It's one of the things it does for us. But it is not what religion is at its core. It may be a function of belief, but not its essence. As a 12-year-old boy, lurking at the back of an old Methodist church, waiting in silence for the possibility of something sacred to be unconcealed, I was not the kind of child anyone at school would ever admire. Lonely, bullied, ignored, relegated to the corner of the playground, reserved for the outcasts and untouchables. The overly sensitive gay kid, the boorish tractor enthusiast, and the Dungeons and Dragons players. When I revisit the moment of my first truly transcendent and mystical experience of God, it's tempting to write it off as an imaginative invention designed to anaesthetise the pain of social exclusion. I needed it to be true, so I made it up. Yet there is more to it than that. That first intimation of divine presence was the beginning of a lifelong quest to experience more. 
It was the teaser trailer of a movie I was yet to see. A tiny taster from an infinite menu. And in the years that followed, I pursued it. To begin with, that strange sense of presence was elusive. I couldn't generate it under my own steam, but ran across it every few months. In a small group, a church service, a prayer meeting, a piece of music. Over time, the frequency increased as I learned patterns of prayer and spiritual practice. Eventually, decades later, it stabilised into an almost daily occurrence. I discovered the Western mystical tradition, a historical lineage that makes sense of what I was sensing and to which I could belong. I made myself at home with Augustine of Hippo, Julian of Norwich, Ignatius of Loyola, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Thomas Merton. My new extended family was large and varied. They became my friends and spiritual guides. I had a history. When I think of the creatives I know, the artists, writers, actors and musicians I have spent time with, I notice that for many of them, their art is a response to the tragedy of life. But I rarely judge their work on the loneliness and pain that drives their compulsion to create. All too often, it is the aching that lingers just under the surface of their work that makes it poignant and affecting. It is not just the beauty of what they create that moves me to tears. It's the heartbreak out of which it is composed. My spiritual journey seems somewhat similar a creative enterprise launched and sustained by a new insight into the nature of the world. Faith is more like a new way of seeing than a new set of propositions to believe. If I'd been happy and fitted seamlessly into the fabric of social life, I doubt I'd have been open to the experience or able to recognise it when it occurred. But just as we might hesitate to reduce an artist's work to little more than psychological self-help, I find myself increasingly reluctant to view my spiritual history as just an expression of my own neurosis. There is another way to tell the story, one that emphasises not so much the problems that drove me to God, but the presence that drew me to him. There is more to the story than my own neediness, and in the final analysis, when the zombie apocalypse comes, at least I have retained sufficient sanity to avoid the guy with the Bible. The Fell Tree, Decoding the Destruction, by Theodore Brun. News of the felling of the sycamore gap tree was greeted across the country with shock, sadness and disgust. Shock at the wanton vandalism, sadness at the loss of an iconic feature of our British Isles, disgust at the kind of nihilism it must have taken in the mind of whoever did the deed. Predictably, social media blew up. I blew up with it. This was our tree, held with such affection by those of us who knew it across the nation as to be almost sacred. The spiteful disregard for that affection felt truly shocking. The most natural reaction to this is anger. 
Throw the book at whoever did it, was the general feeling. Whether it was the 16-year-old boy first arrested or the 60-year-old man detained later, no motive could justify such a mindless act. But then came the double shock for me. A jarring recollection that it was the story of the felling of another great tree that had been the seed of inspiration from which grew my entire historical fiction series, The Wanderer Chronicles. In that story, the man doing the felling seemed to me something of a hero. The tree in question was a mighty oak, dedicated to Donar, better known as Thor, the god of thunder, which once stood in the province of Hesse in central Germany. In the early 8th century, an English missionary, known to history as St Boniface, took an axe to Donar's Oak, a sacred place of worship to the local pagan inhabitants, even as a large crowd of them stood by, raining curses upon his head. Boniface would have justified his act of vandalism on religious grounds. The tree was the site of horrific human sacrifice and rituals of witchcraft, which must be destroyed in part to prove the impotence of this pagan god. Shocking as his acts must have been, Boniface's aim was not to offend. It was to overthrow, to overthrow a system of religious and spiritual oppression, a system of cruelty, death and bondage. In a sense, it was an act of expulsion of false gods who demanded everything and promised nothing in return. That would have been his justification, at least. And in its place, he intended to plant a new culture of faith, freedom and forgiveness of truth and love. It's telling that he used the timber from the fallen oak to build a church. The event marked the beginning of the widespread destruction of many sacred groves and other places of pagan worship in the decades that followed, symbolic of the supplanting of one pre-existing culture by another, more powerful culture on the rise. So can Boniface's good intentions be distinguished from the apparently nihilistic felling of the sycamore gap tree in our own day? I think they can, but no doubt many would disagree. After all these days, we find the idea of one culture asserting itself over another almost as abhorrent as the human sacrifice Boniface was trying to suppress. Certainly to postmodern sensibilities and values, religious motivations no longer justify any kind of cultural vandalism. Few would have much sympathy for the Taliban's destruction of the Buddhas of Bamiyan in 2001, nor for the deliberate arson attacks in the mid-90s on over 50 churches in Norway by neo-pagan black metal bands. Even today, the demolition of a Palestine mosque by Israeli shells as an act of retaliation attracts media opprobrium, no matter the human death toll that provoked it. So, is there any good for which vandalism may be justified? The protest actions of environmental groups like Just Stop Oil or Extinction Rebellion fall into that vein and strongly divide opinion. They proclaim a new gospel of environmentalism. Turn around, mend your ways and be saved. Although, is it really just an old message of paganism? Appease the gods of sun and thunder, or else face oblivion? 
In any case, it's a message burning with no less zeal than did old Boniface's. The question is, how far can you stretch a point? The fact is, there is much that we do not agree on. Borders, taxation, healthcare, education, marriage, sex and gender, even what constitutes a human life. Cultural divisions seem to grow only wider. Increasing mistrust has a standing in opposition to one another, vitriol and disdain filling the space between us. Two tribes in a standoff. Rather like the two hills that form the gap where that beautiful tree stood until last week. The gap is empty now. The tree is what brought them together. The tree was what completed the whole scene. Without it, we see only the empty air between the two opposing hills. In a world and culture that feel ever more divided, perhaps the sycamore gap tree, even in its destruction, can give us some hope, some fleeting moment of cultural unity. Trees still represent to us an essential good. Their existence transcends the passage of our short lives. They stand through storm or shine. They sink their roots deep into the good earth. They stretch their limbs up to the skies. They are a metaphor for a life well lived. The felling of this iconic and beautiful tree is a pang we can all feel, the more so because it seems to have been done as a naked act of vandalism with, so far, no justification offered. Maybe this, then, is its greatest legacy, that rather than reaching for the easy emotions of anger and blame, we can transcend our differences for just a moment and allow ourselves to be reminded that more than we ever realised, we loved that old tree and we shall miss it now it's gone. If we can feel that, perhaps there's hope for us yet. My conversation with Frank Skinner by Belle Tyndall. In David Baddiel's admittedly excellent book, The God Desire, he has a section on his long-time friend Frank Skinner, entitled In a Car with Frank Skinner and His Sins. Not that Frank would know, he's refused to read it. After my conversation with Frank Skinner for the Reenchanting podcast, I'd like to similarly entitle this piece On a Rooftop with Frank Skinner and His Doubts. Frank Skinner, a comedian, broadcaster, an author who has entertained millions through TV shows such as Fantasy Football League, The Frank Skinner Show, Bedeal and Skinner Unplanned, and Room 101, as well as many sell-out stand-up comedy tours. His penmanship is also a force to be reckoned with, having crafted the undeniably iconic Three Lions football anthem, which he penned with the aforementioned Bedeal, as well as my favourite piece of his work, A Comedian's Prayer Book. He's always been open about his Catholic faith, determined to keep his hand up as a, very often the, Christian in any given room. Frank's faith has been, and still is, shot through everything he does, 
even his sinning. This conversation was always going to be interesting. And as such, there are many things one can take away from this conversation with Frank. Perhaps the value he places on doubt as a tool of refinement and source of growth, or his comparing of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens to bullies at a Christian disco, or even his efforts in responsible sinning. It's a fascinating conversation from beginning to end, as I rather embarrassingly told him to his face. I enjoyed every moment of it. However, there was one salient question that was left lingering in my mind days after our conversation ended. Are we, by we I mean Christians, interesting? There's been a theme that's run through re-enchanting thus far, prevalent in our conversations with Jennifer Wiseman, Paul Kingsnorth, Francis Spufford and now Frank Skinner. And that theme is this. In the context of our 21st century cultural moment, Christianity is profoundly weird. And that weirdness is the very basis of its power. It cannot and should not be blended into the so-called secular moment we find ourselves in. This is confronting for me. Someone who has admittedly spent her life watering down the oddest parts of Christianity, only in public, I should state, in an attempt to make it more palatable to my secular peers. As a result, I've ashamedly become the type of Christian that Tom Holland would tell to grow up. Well, if one finds themselves somewhat disillusioned with such a boring no-man's-land of compromised belief, this episode is certainly the perfect antidote. In fact, the entire series is. Frank is only interested in the weird, in the ungraspable, in the outrageous. The way he speaks of interactions with his beloved atheist friends made it seem as though atheism is one of the most obvious things one could claim to be, meaning that there's nothing particularly interesting about it. There's something I find a bit confusing about people in the 21st century saying, this is how daring I am, I'm going to come out as an atheist. Atheism given over as if it's a brave stance. I'll show them a brave stance, and it's not atheism. Speaking in comparison of sitting in mass in his local church, looking on as his priest holds up a piece of wafer, declaring that it is the saviour of the world, Frank says, In the 21st century, the idea that there's a God, that he's got a lamb, a representative that came to earth, that he takes away the sins, and that he is in this bit of wafer, it's outrageous. I don't like the idea that we have to go to them, atheists. It's made it, Christianity, a dull halfway house. Hence this lingering question. Are Christians actually the more interesting ones? My conversation with Frank made me think that we may just be. Even though, as I have mentioned, the entire conversation was one to remember, it was the final five minutes that truly ticked the re-enchanting box for me. Justin and I, along with our guests, have often discussed Christianity as the greatest story ever told. But Frank introduces us to Christianity as a 
living poem, super poetry, poetry that's physical, poetry made flesh, poetry that actually exists. And not only that, but we are a part of that poem. We just need to step into it. There is a blank line waiting for us. How beautiful. It's clear that to Frank Skinner, Christianity is not only very interesting, it's profoundly enchanting. Listen to the first episode of Reenchanting Season 2. Enjoy Frank's disconcerting ability to make you simultaneously laugh lightly and ponder deeply. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.